Hello everyone, it's March 26, 2019. This week we're talking to Erica Hamden. If you've ever wondered how hard it is to design a spacecraft that does science while orbiting the Earth, and who hasn't, then this episode is for you. She's going to break it down for us, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 203 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. I can say I, I heard uh, I heard our show on the radio for the well I heard a promo for our show on the radio for the first time which is pretty cool. Hell yeah! I don't listen to the radio, but plus I wouldn't be able to listen to it where you are or well from, you wouldn't from be able here. to listen to the broadcast radio, but we do stream. But then that just feels like the internet all over again. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, some people really like turning on a radio station on their computer and just leaving it. But um, if anybody's interested, it's ideafablabs.com/maker-radio, and our show airs. Uh, Pacific time. It's Tuesday night. I think we air at noon and nine o'clock at night, something like that. Or uh, nine o'clock and then midnight, I think is what we do. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's no better than just downloading the episode and listening to it when you want to. But it's cool to be able to hear myself in the car, you know, at the, in the lo-fi mm-hmm. radio. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of like, oh, like this it's a talk show. Yeah. It's kind of more tangible. Yeah. But I uh, spontaneously, I heard our, our promo play on the radio yesterday, which is cool. <laughs> That's got to be kind of trippy, especially, I mean, especially for just being radio, because it's not something that I myself ever listen to. The only time I hear the radio is if I accidentally hit a button and then it switches to mm. the radio instead of the aux input. <laughs> yes. And that's it. Yeah. And it's always on some staticky channel. So here's an interesting thing that you might not know. The FCC actually regulates how much dead air you can play. So if you have more than 13 seconds of dead air, you have to report it. And so yesterday we had kind of a freak storm come through the valley uh, from west to east. It was one of those weird 10-minute storms where we got, I think, like an inch of rain. I mean, it was a lot of rain, and there was hail on the leading and trailing edges. But it actually uh, it caused a brownout, and it took our radio station off the air. And so because of this weather system, we now need to make a report to the FCC to let them know that we were off the air for five minutes or something while we uh, scrambled to get the transmitter up and running again uh, and, and reboot the computer and all that. So Cool. I guess with that, we should just go ahead and move on to this week in spaceflight history because, uh, interestingly enough, I don't think we have any winners. So your clue last week was harder than I thought it would be. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, I knew it was a hard clue. I didn't think it was that that bad so the clue was something like i guess that counts as a flyby something like that and the person who got closest was neoforce and we'll talk about what their guess was but it was a good guess so this week in spaceflight history is the 28th of march 1986 it was the flyby of comet Halley performed by ic3 or ice so let's talk about the spacecraft real quick um, in the show notes is a wonderful little image showing uh, ICE's uh, trajectory, um, which is really crazy. So August 12th, 1978, they launched the International Sun-Earth Explorer 3. They got it up into a high orbit and ended up putting it in the Earth-Sun L- L1 Lagrange point. So uh, if you're familiar with Lagrange points, uh, L1 is between the Earth and the Sun. And so it's basically going to sit uh, on the inside edge of Earth's orbit and uh, study the outer bounds of the magnetosphere and how that magnetosphere of the Earth interacts with the sun at the upper reaches. Um, they also looked at the shock wave. So the solar wind 
as it hits the magnetosphere of the Earth, it creates a shock wave, much like the prow of a boat. Uh, they also studied plasma sheets coming off of the sun and uh, cosmic rays and solar flare emissions. So that's that's very cool. Uh, IC3 out doing its thing. Well, after they finished the IC mission, they changed the name to ICE, International Cometary Explorer. And on the 10th of June, 1982, they transitioned from one mission to the other. So they left the L1 Lagrange point and they did a bunch of maneuvers to get out into an interplanetary orbit. So they passed by L2 a couple of times. They did a couple of propulsive maneuvers and they did a bunch of lunar gravity assists um, to end up flinging uh, the vehicle away from the Earth. Uh, so on September 11th of 1985, they did a flyby of Jacobini Zinner, which is a comet, and they uh, flew through the plasma tail of the comet and they ended up going uh, within uh, 7,800 kilometers of the nucleus. Um, then on the 28th of March, 1986, they encountered the comet Halley. So that's what this week in spaceflight history is. Um, Halley was currently being studied by an armada, which included Giotto, Vega 1 and 2, um, Suisse, and Sakagaki. And um, remember how I said that Neoforce got pretty close, uh, Neoforce guessed um, Sakagaki's fly, uh, flyby of Haley. And so, you know, we call this an encounter, but ice was 28 million kilometers away from the comet, but it contributed to this big cloud of data that, they were, that we were collecting. And what's really cool about, about ice's contribution is that it was directly between the sun and the comet. So, you know, you're able to see a lot of reflected light and you're also not having to deal with very much background light. So they, you know, could collect data in a way that none of the other probes could. So it's it's worth pointing out that ICE flew past Halley's Comet at 28 million kilometers, but Earth actually did it one better. Back in 1910, Earth got to within 20.8 million kilometers of the comet, which is, uh, you know, definitely uh, technology change. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so, you know, I'm calling it a flyby. It's it's really a, a distant flyby there. Um, so once uh, ICE had, you know, done some of these studies on comets, uh, they continued to utilize it as a science platform. And so it began to study the sun. So there's already a spacecraft up uh, called Ulysses, which was put into an 80 degree inclination orbit around the sun, which is crazy. <laughs> I think it's one of the highest inclination orbits around the sun that we've ever accomplished. Very, very crazy. So ice ends up altering its, uh, its inclination. It didn't get up to 80 degrees, but it pushed itself away from the ecliptic to contribute to the Ulysses mission. And then uh, May 5th, 1997 is when NASA decided to end the ICE mission. Uh, by 1995, they were already in a, a low duty cycle mode where they weren't um, getting that much data back from the, from the vehicle. But in 1997, they actually decommissioned the vehicle. And so what they did was they left the carrier signal running because the spacecraft was relatively healthy at that point. Um, so they, they left the carrier signal running and, and just let it float around the sun. 
its final, you know, quote unquote parking orbit uh, was a 355 day orbit around the sun with an aphelion of 1.03 AU and a perihelion of 0.93 AU and an inclination of 0.1 degrees, which, uh, Hmm, 0.1 degrees is less than the Earth's inclination, I believe. So I guess they lowered the inclination when it was working with Ulysses instead of raising it. So in 1999, it still had this carrier signal running. So NASA just poked it, uh, basically sent a couple messages, woke it up, got a, a status dump, and then intended to shut it down. On September 18th of 2008, we found out that they didn't actually successfully shut down the spacecraft. And so from 99 to 2008, it had basically been circling the sun, collecting data with its uh, science experiments. All 13 experiments were still running at that point. And so in 2008, we realized that this was happening and we got back in touch with it, got another status report, um, found out how much fuel it has left, uh, 150 meters per second. And then in 2014, a bunch of civilians decided that they were going to try to recover the spacecraft. This has never been done before since by civilians. And I think it's really cool and never been done by that. I mean, we never attempted to do this uh, and raised money to do it. They didn't actually recover it. Spoiler alert. So they raised $159,502 to fund this effort. And what they did was they needed to go through the archives and figure out what language the vehicle spoke and to find out what uh, what resources it had on board and how to control the vehicle. Um, they also needed to write a bunch of software because the hardware that was originally used to talk to this uh, spacecraft no longer exists, so they had to, you know, do a bunch of development just to be able to talk to the thing properly. Um, they also needed to pay for time on dishes because, you know, you have to use the DSN to talk to this thing when it's that far out. And so what's really cool is they actually used software to emulate the hardware that was originally used. Um, which is really cool that we can do that now. And they installed all of their equipment at Arecibo, which is pretty cool. Not the DSN, which is what I originally said. I knew it wasn't the DSN. They, they used Arecibo. <laughs> On May 29th, 2014, uh, they successfully put the vehicle into engineering mode. Uh, on June 26th, they got enough data back from it to very precisely determine its orbit. On July 2nd, they spun up the vehicle using its thrusters, um, which is what you have to do before you can fire its, uh, its actual propulsion to move it into a new orbit. On July 8th, they attempted some longer burns, uh, but found out that their burns were actually failing to execute because there wasn't enough nitrogen left to pressurize the tanks. All the nitrogen had uh, had leaked out. So what they were intending to do was to do a moon flyby. And during that flyby, they were going to do a burn taking advantage of the Oberth effect um, where, you know, it's it's more efficient to do burns as deep in a gravity well as you can. You get it gives you more bang for your buck, basically. And so they were going to fly past the moon and do this burn uh, very close to the moon. So they would actually have enough. Uh, Delta V to be able to capture around Earth. On August 10th, they uh, had their scheduled moon flyby, but since they didn't have the thrusters uh, up and running, they weren't able to capture. But they did uh, do some science around the moon as they, you know, zipped past it going very, very fast. Uh, the closest that they got to the moon was 15,600 kilometers or 9,700 miles. On September 25th, uh, their attempts to contact the vehicle were unsuccessful. 
Um, they believe that since their moon flyby put it into a higher orbit, it ended up cooling down uh, or losing power, having fewer photons from the sun hitting its solar panels, basically. And they believe that it went into uh, a sleep mode. So maybe one day it'll wake back up. We're not sure. Unfortunately, since it went into this recovery mode, uh, it stopped broadcasting its carrier signal. And so without the carrier signal, we can't locate it. The only way to find it now would be like active radar or a visual fix with a telescope, neither of which is is actually practical or you know in use today basically um can't you can't do it so we had very good orbital parameters but as soon as it flew past the earth moon system it changed its orbital parameters and we're not exactly sure by how much it's a it's an issue that we talk about a lot high sensitivity to initial conditions as that flyby happens we we know where the vehicle is with a decent amount of precision, but since it's not sub-centimeter precision, being off by a couple of meters left or right uh, means that you're being affected by the, the moon's gravity more or less. And it's enough that, you know, after a certain amount of time, you simply cannot predict uh, where the vehicle is with enough precision to do anything useful. So uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, IC3 slash ICE is now unavailable to us. We're not going to be able to recover it. With that being said, in 2031, it's expected to return to the vicinity of the Earth. And maybe at that point, it won't be impossible to use, you know, active radar or a visual fix or something to actually scan the sky for it. Um, and maybe we can have another civilian effort to, to try and recover it. Interestingly enough, if you were to launch a spacecraft and go pick it, uh, pick it up out of solar orbit, you would actually have to talk to its current owners who are the Smithsonian Museum. Um, <laughs> it was actually donated to the Smithsonian by NASA, uh, even though it's uh, unrecoverable <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but there you go. That's IC3. Kind of a crazy life for such a small and relatively simple spacecraft. Cool. What then is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 1973, the clue is if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it still make a sound? Okay. Regardless of whether or not you think it does or does not make a sound, if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. True Dragon is close, but not quite ready for human flight. And we have some other SpaceX news, actually. Yeah, so this is like <laughs> yeah, a little kind of SpaceX catch-all. <laughs> <laughs> SpaceX potpourri. We realized a few things were going on, yeah. There's a pun in there in involving Musk, but whatever. All right, yeah, we won't, we uh, won't do that. I hate you. I <laughs> yeah. hate you so much. So DM1, as we know, that was a complete success, but... Some things that were not on board, perhaps the equipment that you might need to actually carry a crew, such as life support. Now, actually, I wasn't quite clear on this. I thought maybe there was life support equipment on board, but it was not for this particular. It was limited. It, there was. It, it was, just wasn't full life support. It was yeah. partial life support. Okay, so partial but not full. Okay. And then the other thing was crew interfaces, and I believe that we did talk about that last week or the week prior. There were, there were no touch screens or anything inside. Uh, they, they had placeholders, though, which is kind of cool. So the idea is that this DM2 doesn't actually have, you know, permission to take humans just yet until they oh, get it, these sort of... Well, yeah, you can you can say that. I mean, it's 
it's going to get these things done. They're just things that need to get done before it can fly. And it's not like NASA's like, oh, no, you can't. It's just like these are steps along the way. And it's, you know, NASA's helping SpaceX to develop this thing. Did you, did you guys hear about the thrusters, though? I didn't realize that this was a thing. No, I did not hear about this, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I only really read cool. about it this morning. Yeah. Right, me too. So it turns out that if DM-1 would have been delayed, they couldn't have flown on the next potential opportunity. They would have had to wait a bit longer. So the difference between these different opportunities, these launch opportunities, is how long you're going to have to be on orbit doing phasing orbits, uh, catching up to the station or slowing down. I think it's normally it's catching up. And uh, it turns out that this crew dragon um, was only allowed to be on orbit for a certain amount of time before it docked with the station. Um, because vacuum tests on the ground showed that it actually ended up getting cold enough to freeze some of the propellant in the propellant lines, meaning that the Draco thrusters wouldn't work and they could potentially endanger the ISS by having an uncontrolled vehicle. So, you know, luckily the, the solution was really easy. They just limited or, you know, constrained how long they could be flying free before they got to ISS. Um, to make sure that there wasn't enough time for the cold to soak in and to freeze the propellant. But for Crew Dragon, you're not, you know, that's not a good uh, no. a good thing to have is, oh, just just get there quickly and you'll be all right. Um, so for uh, DM2, the next Crew Dragon flight, they're actually going to install heaters on the propellant lines, which is a fairly large change um, because it's, you know, it's not just like you're changing the shape of a thing. You're actually adding an additional power draw to the vehicle. So that seems like a, a fairly dramatic change to be making this late in the vehicle design. Do you think it would be an additional power draw because it would have to draw from, you know, the primary source? Or do you think maybe it might be some kind of like a, a little battery pack thing that could just heat up the lines? I, I think it's going to be tied into the main electricity bus. I, I would be kind of surprised if they gave it its own power subsystem because you'd have to qualify all of that they will have to run it by nasa but it might not be too big of a deal depending on what it is that they want to do but i suppose you know putting new batteries on board yeah that might mean like further qualification because that can be a big deal when it comes to batteries because they can be scary and they can explode yeah and when you when you already have solar arrays on a vehicle you kind of just let's just use those yeah i'm sure that there's enough like margin there right if there wasn't enough margin this would be a much bigger issue yeah, so that heating problem, that's kind of surprising. Do you think that was something that SpaceX knew the whole time, or did this just kind of crop up out of nowhere, and then they went, oh, hold on, this will cause freezing of the propellant lines? Yeah. Because they did the tests, so they knew. Yeah, I was going to say, so I don't know if they didn't report it at all, or they just underreported it to the point that not one of us three had heard about it. I would be surprised if they knew that it was an issue before the vacuum testing. It seems it seems pretty ridiculous to to risk going, hey, you know, this might freeze the propellant. Oh, okay, well, let's just let NASA figure that out. Like that... That seems like a really good way to get in trouble. But how long ago was the vacuum testing? It was, uh, oh, last summer uh, is when we figured this out. So, that, I mean, that's not a long time ago. You know, that's that's very late in development of this vehicle to figure out that your models were wrong and they are going to get cold enough. You say it's not a long time ago, but I mean, it's been at least six months or a little bit more than that. And so in all that time, they just kind of sat on it and said, well, I mean, because they know they're going to have to fix it at some point. So mm -hmm. I guess they're just going to get around so, to it eventually. <laughs> 
here here's here's what my guess is um they put the vehicle into the vacuum chamber they find out that this is an issue so last summer they go okay how are we going to fix this well for dm2 we'll install heaters for dm1 do we have time to install heaters no we don't so what what can we do can we limit the constraints of the mission oh yeah that will you know, satisfy requirements. NASA's happy with it. Okay. So for DM one, we're going to go with no heaters for DM two. Let's start developing those heaters now. And so they've probably been working on those heaters for a while. I don't think that this was a matter of, you know, willful ignorance or anything like that. No, that makes sense. I I was getting the timelines all screwed up because I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, a little more than six months ago and all this time you didn't install heaters and yet you still plan on doing DM2 later this year. But yeah, if they're working on the heaters for DM2, that makes yeah, sense. They can, they can work on the treat the two different vehicles separately because they're two right. Cause yeah, vehicles. it is separate yeah. vehicles that they're using. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just didn't want to make any further modifications to the first dragon because you know, they had that all lined up and they figured let's not touch it. Yeah. Right. You, you do the simplest thing that'll work. That seems plausible enough to me. And yeah. Um, Hans Koenigsmann, during the um, DM1 presser, he did say that they were going to have to requalify those heaters. Okay. And then in other SpaceX news, uh, let's talk about some hex tiles, which seems to be, that's mm-hmm. kind of like the top story seems to me. Now, I thought that the heat tile thing was scrapped and that this was going to be a, a fully stainless steel second stage, but it's not. Or, you know, the actual Starship was going to be, because we know that, that that's the first stage. They don't need heat tiles. I thought that the second stage was just going to rely on transpiration, but the windward side is going to have these thermal tiles, which seems far more plausible to me, actually. (laughs) I think it's one of those issues where Elon says something with not a lot of context and we try to apply our own context and come to the incorrect conclusions. But yeah, it's I don't know what these heat tiles are made out of. I don't know if they've said so far, but it's something that is like a no refurbishment kind of heat tile. So they're they're sort of doing layers of thermal protection on the back side of the vehicle all you need is this reflective material and you're fine on the windward side you're going to need heat tiles and then for certain hot spots you're going to need transpiration cooling and so the way that Elon talked about this in a tweet. We may be doing the same thing, trying to find our own context here. He said that they're going to use transpiration cooling where they find a lot of heat tile wear, which to me almost sounds like they're going to be using the real world as a simulation and fly this thing with heat tiles and then change the design to add the transpiration cooling. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe he's talking about virtual wear as they uh, as they do simulations in the computer and uh, if that's the case, and the first Starship could fly with transpiration cooling online. I don't know. It's one of those things where no matter what we decide it means, we're not necessarily going to be right. And even if we are right, that rightness might not persist for very long as SpaceX <laughs> updates its... It is a fluid situation. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the it's a blessing and a curse. It's nice to be able to hear all this uh, right away and it also sucks to you know see the back and forth and not know exactly what the final solution is going to be the thing that i'm maybe failing to understand is how does that solve anything with the actual heat tiles because most of the time at least you know like the heat tiles on board the shuttle and like other spacecraft it's very it's almost like room temperature on the other side but it's actually the side that faces outward that gets very hot and i don't see how transpiration is going to fix that although i could be wrong like maybe it will provide this very small boundary of cool gas that might 
reduce the temperature just enough. But I don't see how transpirational cooling makes the tiles any cooler. Well, okay. How does sweat make you cooler? It carries away the heat once it evaporates. Right. Um, and and that, that evaporation, the changing of states is soaking up a lot of energy and then it's floating away into the air and taking that heat away. That's exactly what this is doing is it'll change state on the surface, soaking up energy like a sponge and then fly away as if you're dumping that sponge overboard. These little micropores, they can't be on the actual tile, but instead they have to be on the surface. I don't know well, because that I was thought my that was... question. <laughs> I don't think we know. It seems like a hard thing to engineer. Yeah, I, I almost got the sense that the idea was that the transpiration will take place at the interfaces of the tiles, and that's why they have the hexagonal yeah. shape specifically. Well, the hexagonal shape is specifically so that you don't have any straightaways that hot gas can run down in the cracks. But think about this. Um, yeah, so you're, you're totally, it's totally a possibility. You're right that the liquid could be pressed up between the tiles, but consider this, how big is the gap between the tiles going to be? Even if you press them up against each other, you're always going to have, you know, a good couple of millimeters of a gap and that's going to be okay. They're going to design the system to have that tolerance. But if that gap is a couple millimeters, how big do you need to squirt, you know, methane through even smaller? So if you have holes smaller than the gaps between the tiles, even if they're in the face of the tile, I don't think it's necessarily going to be an issue. It might be, but we can kind of reason our way into thinking that that's, you know, potentially you could just have it come straight through the tile. I um, say you've convinced me now. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You, you could absolutely be right that, you know, it's only going to come up through the cracks. It seems to me that being able to engineer those tiny little pores inside the thermal tile, that that would be tricky. Maybe. So the, the hot news here is that uh, Elon uh, posted a, a, a video of their heat tiles under, uh, you know, like flamethrowers or whatever, getting white or not white hot like yellow hot just glowing hot and it's it's pretty cool that we're getting close i i love the hexagonal shape i mean i understand that there's an engineering reason behind it but hexagons are cool <laughs> they look so good <laughs> they're the future james webb proved that but i'm thinking another thing too like if, if it's you know what if you find that hot spot right in the middle of this tile I don't have a full sense of scale, but these things look like they're maybe, what, a foot and a half to a couple of feet across? Yeah, that's what I feel. And so, you know, you're, if, if you've got a hot spot in the middle and you're going to be cooling via transpiration a foot away, that's not really going to probably cool down right. the hot spot at all. And that's exactly why I, I'm a bit confused. So if you could leak that gas through the cracks and it kind of flowed upwards, since it's not creating a boundary layer but i guess that would be enough to cool the tile just cool as it passes edges. over the surface no it would cool the edges where the evaporation is taking place but i don't think it would do much to cool the inside and the problem there is that the tiles are intentionally not transmissive to heat so if you exactly. cool the, <laughs> the edge it's going to just like you said it's going to be real hard to actually affect the temperature in the middle and keeping the temperature relatively low is the entire point because that reduces wear on the heat mm -hmm. shields. That's kind of what confused me is that like you'd have to keep the temperature low on the 
heat shield, not just the surface of the actual spacecraft, because mm -hmm. that's not the point here. They're trying to save the tiles, and so I just don't yeah. know how they're doing it. It's a tough problem. I mean, it is the problem of reentry. You know, sending things up is not relatively. It's not that hard. Getting them back down is is pretty tough. And in this case, trying to get them back down where they're then able to just be reused without any refurbishment. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yes. <laughs> a very hard problem. So we had seen some photos of what looked like a new nose cone being built for the hopper. And Elon had already said, we're going to fly it without a nose cone. And so everybody's like, well, why are you building a new one then? Turns out they're not just building the hopper. They're also building an orbital spacecraft. Um, so cool. So we have already being constructed the three stages that we're waiting for. The first is really short, tiny little hops uh, with a single engine basically just to make sure that everything's plugged in the right way around. Um, and then they're going to install two more engines in the hopper, and it's going to do what Elon calls suborbital hops. Um, I want to point out that throwing a baseball into the air is also a suborbital hop. And then after that, they're going to go orbital. So th this is really exciting to see orbital hardware being constructed right now. So we have photos of what is to be the orbital version of Starship. Now, again, and I know I've said this before, it really doesn't look like it could like make it to space. It looks like a giant it's, grain it's silo. In its, yeah, it's, it's in silo mode. <laughs> step one, build a silo, step two. It almost looks like the actual joints have like rust running down them. No, I, I do see that orange kind of tint. So this is what will physically be going up into orbit. You are incredulous. <laughs> I am incredulous. Who yeah. am I to judge, you know, as long as the engineering and physics all works out, then it can be done, but it doesn't look like it. Yeah, I think that's what I had asked back when we were at the, the original, the hoppers, uh, when we were first talking about it looking like a grain silo. And I think my question was just kind of wondering, is, is this really what, under any old rocket that we see, is this what it looks like when it's still naked? You know what I mean? So I, I think it might be the grade of steel making it look different. Also, um, the relative sizes, the thickness of the steel versus the diameter of the vehicle. Also, this these starships are being constructed in almost a haphazard way, right? Yeah, I've kind of been noticing that. I mean, they literally were just like, oh, the nose cone's broken. Well, we didn't need it anyway. Let's just keep pushing forward. You build something outside, it's going to look less tidy than something built inside in a purpose-built facility. So uh, I'm assuming that it's going to get better as time goes on, but <laughs> yeah, this is not... Mm -hmm. This is not normal for the industry. But what has SpaceX ever done that's been normal for the industry? So now let's do some short and sweet, our standard three short and sweet. So what's our first one, Ben? All right, Bereshit is on course for the moon. The Bereshit lander performed a maneuver on March 19th, putting its apogee at 405,000 kilometers. This puts it on course for lunar transfer. A few more minor burns will be performed, but the trajectory is set for lunar capture around April 4th. Earlier problems with the spacecraft star trackers have forced the lander to maneuver in a non-nominal fashion, but otherwise haven't presented issues for the mission. The larger challenge will be landing. As a result of the Star Tracker issues, the lander will have to go in partially blind, relying on its laser range finding and Doppler radar. Next up, the ISS gets some fresh batteries. Nick Haig and Anne McLean successfully completed a spacewalk lasting over six hours to replace six old nickel hydrogen batteries with three 300 pound lithium ion batteries. 
This task also included the installation of 375 pound adapter plates that allow for integration of the new batteries as well as storage for the old ones. This spacewalk was the first for both astronauts. Another excursion is planned for next Friday to replace six more batteries. This EVA will be performed by Anne McLean and Christina Cook, making it the first all-female EVA in history. And finally, NASA engineers still unclear on why InSight's heat probe is stuck. One of the two main instruments on the Mars InSight lander, the burrowing HP cubed heat probe, has been stuck at a depth of 30 centimeters since February, only 6 to 10% of the way to its target depth of 3 to 5 meters. Project officials plan to spend the next few weeks determining whether the problem lies with the instrument itself or the Martian subsurface. In the case of the latter, the plan forward may be to simply keep on digging and hope to break through whatever material is proving difficult to penetrate or pull the instrument out entirely and try again. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have a correction this week from Chris Burke. Our own Chris Burke. So this correction came via Discord, uh, our Discord server. This was regarding, I th again, it's, it's, this is just like one of those things that I feel like you you said in passing, but mm. technically you were wrong. Um, so uh, this was part of last week's This Week in Spaceflight History. And you had said that, um, oh crap, well, what are the details here? So I had said that the Molly Brown was the last capsule that nasa allowed these the astronauts to name who was it that named it was that gus grissom yeah because grissom was on mr4 so he named it the molly brown and then they told him to pick another one and then he said titanic is that yep exactly happened? It's smart and they go okay fine you can stick with the molly brown <laughs> but that was not the last time that an astronaut was allowed to name a spacecraft it was just the last for the gemini capsules so right yeah. Which spacecraft do you suppose was the last one to be named by an astronaut? Because actually, I think it probably was quite some time ago, right? Like, there hasn't been anything like that in a, since I the Apollo era. I would say the end of Apollo. Because, yeah. Because um, the Russians don't name their vehicles. The next vehicles that had names were the shuttles, and those... Mm -hmm. Yeah, those definitely were not uh, were not named by the astronauts. I, I think the the next closest we would get would be Cygnus, which I mean wasn't named by astronauts, but they do have you know names that are, are really nice. Um, and and then uh, Ben Hallert came in and made a joke. He said, "Yeah, it's the same with Orion. Hence, capsule McCapsule face for EM two. <laughs> All right, so this week we have a really cool interview. We have a Professor Erica Hamden of the University of Arizona, an astronomy professor or the professor of astronomy. Is that how, is that the proper astronomy introduction? Astronomy professor, yeah. Okay. <laughs> astronomy professor at the University of Arizona. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Just before the show, Ben had said, the idea is ask the spacecraft designer how to design a spacecraft. I'm not sure if that's the best way to do it. But yeah, here's a softball question. So how do you build a spacecraft? Uh, I... <laughs> With a lot of work. <laughs> More specifically, since, you know, your focus is astronomy, that it's how to build the instrumentation that does well, all that kind of cool work. It's actually the whole thing. Like, it's basically how to build a space telescope. And so that includes the instrument and the spacecraft. And, mm. Good point. Because um, they're really um, fundamentally connected, which is kind of what I'm discovering is I mm. know a lot about how to build a spectrograph or a telescope, but how to put it in space and then be able to use it. I'm learning so much about, like, orbits and communication systems and, like, the thermal arrangement of where you put everything and what kind of you know that depends on what orbit you're in and so i'm realizing that even though what i want to do is just like look at stuff in space there's a lot of more <laughs> engineering things that are required so uh what what's the most surprising thing you've learned 
uh, that, that you just didn't expect to be the case? The most surprising thing has probably been how much changes depending on what orbit you're in. Because, you know, you, you don't really hear about the different types of orbits. Like, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope is in some low Earth orbit, although actually it's higher up than the International Space Station, for example. But that when you see like NASA satellites, they tend to have, they're like mostly around the equator and um, you sort you can like see the where they are over plotted on a map of the Earth. But actually that there's this whole other class of satellites that are in what's called a sun synchronous orbit where they basically follow the day-night terminator. So they're like, one side of them is always facing the sun, and the other side is always facing into deep space. Um, that orbit, for what I want to do, is actually preferred, because then you have different regions of the sky which you can just view continuously. Like, you don't mm. need to turn the spacecraft at all. But then if if you do that, because half of your spacecraft is in the sun all the time, you have to have like a really careful thermal treatment because part of it's going to get hot and then the other part will be colder and you need to... In some cases, that's okay, but you have to like figure out how you're going to handle that. Um, but then it also is really fuel heavy to get into that orbit. It's much easier to go into an equatorial orbit. And so you can put a heavier spacecraft in, but then if you're gonna go to a sun sink orbit, you need a, a lighter spacecraft or a better rocket. And then I was looking into this totally wacky type of orbit that the TESS telescope is in, which is called a lunar resonance orbit. And that is really far away from the earth, but for their mission, it made sense, but it also takes a lot of power to get up to that much higher orbit. But yeah, I, I sort of thought that the, I mean, the science question that we're asking sets a lot of the mission parameters, but to a certain extent um, that feeds into what orbit you get, but then the orbit then feeds back into what you can actually do, like how long can your longest exposure be? So that's been just the the level of interconnection has been really amazing. Yeah, I guess I guess welcome to engineering, right? Like that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much all of all the designed world kind of follows those restrictions. But in space, like it, it's so much more fluid. Like you know, on Earth, if you're designing like a TV remote, you know, you get to choose the size and that ties into the mass, which also ties into the number of buttons you can put on there. And then, you know, but but like in space, it's not just going to be something that's sitting on, you know, a coffee table. It's something that's flying around in this very dynamic environment. Like we, we just learned that Crew Dragon, the, they just finished their Demonstration 1 mission, or Demo Mission 1, and it turns out they actually um, had to constrain uh, the amount of time that Dragon was in orbit before it docked to ISS. Um, because it turns out that its propellant lines can freeze, and we didn't know that. And oh wow, right. And and so that's only an issue when you're in this very very low Earth orbit because your night is so long. But if you were sending the exact same capsule, you know, to the moon, it wouldn't be that big of a deal because you're in the sun, you know, more often. So ha have you experienced any of those kind of dynamic constraints uh, specifically with orbit? I mean, like you know, su sun synchronous is such a, a weird a weird place to be. It, it, I, yeah. I guess I'm looking for more interesting tidbits about interesting orbits. Well, one thing that's been really, that sort of goes into the orbit selection. So the telescope that I'm working on is a design for an ultraviolet spectrograph. And one of the reasons that you put a telescope in space is because the, the like brightness of the Earth's atmosphere is much lower when you're outside of the atmosphere. And astronomers, we call that like sky background. Just like if you look into an empty patch of sky, what's the level of light that is just coming from stars you can't resolve, from like stuff in the atmosphere, from whatever. And so when you're in space, you don't have any of that stuff in the atmosphere. But in the UV, the Earth actually has a bunch of um, emission lines, mostly from oxygen, 
in the upper atmosphere that gets excited by, you know, the sun or whatever. Uh, but there's also hydrogen. There's just a bunch of emission lines in the UV. And so we've had to really consider what orbits are possible, because if, if you are in that sun sink orbit, for example, and you're looking along the limb of the Earth, if you go, t- if you're pointing too close to the Earth, you get a bunch of Earth glow is what it's called. And if you're in a normal equatorial low Earth orbit, then that's less of an issue because you can always point away from the Earth, have, you know, have the Earth directly behind your telescope and be pointing out. Whereas with the sun sink, the Earth is always below you, so it's a little bit more of an issue with just having these larger backgrounds. But then in the more complicated test orbit, which I've just been like really into the test orbit, although for us it's not possible because our the rocket that we need to design for is not strong enough to get you into the test orbit. That orbit is so far away from the Earth that there's basically no contamination from the Earth glow. Um, so for our mission, it would be really ideal just because you have really low backgrounds. And then similarly, you're, um, you don't have to worry about things freezing because you're in, the, you're not in the shadow of the Earth ever. And there's a lot of benefits, but that orbit, in order to, they put the telescope up with a, a SpaceX Falcon 9, which is very powerful. And then, they also had propellant on board so that they could get into an even higher orbit than where that just the, the rocket took them. So for us, the mission, our mission is a smaller format, so we don't have that capability. But I think it's like what they did with that orbit was so cool and very innovative. It was the first thing that ever got put there. And it's really worked out incredibly well for them. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize that it was the first uh, lunar resonant satellite. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I kind of always assume that anything interesting has already been done before. But yeah, that's where it's still new <laughs> enough for this whole space thing. So I'm wondering what's so special about that type of an orbit that you are in a resonance with the moon? Because I don't know how that would affect the spacecraft in any positive way. I mean, like you said, it's a good thing to be further away from the Earth. But why in synchronicity with the moon? Yeah, that's a good question because the moon so basically for tests their their mission profile is that they're looking at these big chunks of the sky for i think it's like two weeks at a time they have uh 24 different zones like almost the entire sky is separated into 24 viewing regions and then they stare for a really long time at one viewing region and they switch to the next viewing region and then so on and over the course of a year they go through every all 24 regions and in order to do that effectively they can't have things in their viewing zone basically so like if you're looking at viewing zone one you don't want the moon to be in viewing zone one for three days and so by doing the lunar resonance or orbit they know exactly where the moon is and it's always out of the viewing zone through the entire year so they had a pretty strict requirement on that like incident where the moon or the earth is in the way of where you're trying to look is called an eclipse Um, So if the moon comes in front of your target, you're getting eclipsed by the moon. And they had a requirement that eclipses could last no longer than six hours out of that like two week observing period. And so that actually put pretty tough requirements. There's a couple of papers that they've written about about that orbit and how they optimized for it. And it was really a challenge. But once they found it and sort of figured out the best way to do it, then um, it's been really, really great. The other issue with that orbit, of course, is that they're pretty far away. And so the downlinks can only be done when they're closest to the Earth, which is still a pretty high orbit. But it takes them like four, they like down like two weeks worth of data over six hours right when they're at closest approach. So how close is it? Like what's the perigee? It's like 14 Earth radii, I want to say. Yeah, that is still like, pretty far there. out actually. <laughs> this is uh, probably not a great question to ask, but do, do you happen to know why they didn't just go to like a Lagrange point? Um, I think it's mostly to do with the downlink because they are collecting <gasps> oh. a lot of data and the typically what gets sent to a Lagrange point, you have to really throttle what you're actually sending back to Earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, I never I never thought about that. Like JWST is is not generating as much data as TESS is because TESS is just uh, the, the shutter bug of 
of telescopes. <laughs> yeah, and the data rates are really, I mean, people are working on having faster, um, better downlinks from space so that you can you can get more data down. Um, there's like using lasers, a bunch of different like optical systems. But for right now, anyway, the stuff that like NASA gives you a certain list of different telecom bands that you can access and each one has a certain data rate. And so you just have to figure out what's the cheapest that you can do and still get your data down. And in our case, I really don't want to do onboard processing. And I I think onboard processing is, in the case of something like um, Kepler, where they knew where all of their targets were, all the stars already had positions, so they could just downlink those pixels. Like, I think that's okay, but it's also just really dangerous. Like, you don't know what you're missing if you don't bring the entire frame down. And so the, the, the spacecraft you're working on, the instrumentation for that spacecraft, this would be more of a Hubble or JWST. You choose what you want to look at and, you know, different people you know, apply for this time and then get to point at different things or? So it would start out with just having a, a set science program that like the science team that helped was working with me to design the telescope, we would choose targets. And then what I'd like is eventually to have like a guest observer program. But the telescope I'm designing is for NASA's smallest telescope program, which is called the Small Explorer. And you have two years for your mission, which is really not a lot of time. So typically you just have the PI um, science case for those two years, and then later on you would open it up. Whereas Hubble and JWST are like flagships, so they're kind of designed with the entire community in mind. So then, but I mean, like, so so for your science case, that's not so much, is that more of a Kepler kind of looking at a single particular part of the sky or looking at the galactic plane or off the plane or it would be looking mostly at the galactic plane but the science case for my telescope would be to understand and test the link between molecular hydrogen and star formation by looking directly at molecular hydrogen which is a thing that we haven't really done yet <laughs> cool okay because that was a question that i was wondering i'd never thought about whether or not there's some orbits that are better for looking in the plane of the galaxy or off the plane oh yeah because um, like a sun sink orbit, so if you have a sun sink orbit, typically you can have fixed solar panels on your spacecraft, which is way cheaper. Anything that you don't have to articulate is definitely better. But then that means that you can, it sort you sort of have to have enough battery capacity that you can look off of the plane of the ecliptic to look at your targets, and then your solar panels won't be pointed at the, at the sun, and then you can go back down to looking along the ecliptic. So if you had like the simplest possible spacecraft and the simplest mission, you would actually be restricted just to the ecliptic plane plus or minus like 30 degrees. But for our targets, it's actually mostly in the galactic plane and that does not coincide with the ecliptic. So we we have to also figure out, okay, if we want to look at like the serpent's molecular cloud, how long can we do a single exposure before we start to drain the batteries so much that we then need to point the spacecraft to something else so that the solar panels are looking back at the sun. So different orbits definitely give you a preference for what plane you're actually most easily pointing in. One thing that you had mentioned, I think, at the beginning was that a big problem with this particular type of an orbit is the heat problem. So how are you tackling that since you're going to be in a sun-synchronous orbit and I guess like one side, you know, is pretty much always facing the sun? Yeah, so you basically make sure that the side that's facing the sun is okay being hot. (laughs) So certain (laughs) things that are supposed to be hot, you can put them over there. But our detector that we would like to use needs to be cold, and so we need some kind of radiative system to cool it. And it needs to be like um, around like minus 90 Celsius. So as far as cold things in space, it's not super cold, but it still needs a, a radiator. And that radiator, we have to make sure, is always pointing both away from the, the hot side of the spacecraft. It has to be on the cold side. And then it also has to point um, away from the Earth. So that's when we think about like operations, like how are we going to 
use the telescope every day, you have to think a lot about like, where is the radiator pointing during this integration to make sure that we can maintain a stable temperature on the detector. So right now, are you guys just running like theoretical pointing programs? Or are you actually beginning to design what you expect the mission to look like? So we're kind of doing both since there's never enough time to do everything. <laughs> so we sort of have a couple different, like the SunSync orbit is our primary what we'd like to get to. That depends, of course, on the payload mass. So we're still in the process of designing the optical system, which is really what sets the mass of things. It's like, how how big is your telescope? How much does it weigh? So the SunSync is a preferred, but if that doesn't work out, then maybe we'd go to like a 28 degree orbit, like a regular low Earth orbit. And then if we do that, that sort of has a different thermal setup. But I'm partnering with Ball Aerospace to do the spacecraft, and they have a lot of experience in just like any type of orbit. So they sort of have a bunch of ready-made thermal solutions for the SunSync orbit, which is also their preference because it means that the fewer things need to move in the spacecraft. But yeah, that's the that part has been really interesting to learn about um, all the different capability that these different aerospace companies have. And you don't you tend not to hear as much about it. You hear about the science return from the yeah. instrument, but the actual spacecraft is like just a wonder. Yeah, I, I kind of imagine uh, when I'm sitting on the toilet, I'm probably reading like the IKEA catalog. And I love the idea of somebody <laughs> sitting on the toilet reading a spacecraft catalog where they're, you know, oh, that thruster would be nice. And <laughs> oh, that's a really clever solution for, you know, X, Y, and Z. So, so what does that actually look like when you're going back and forth with Ball? Are they making proposals and saying, well, we have component X, Y, Z, or are you able to look through their catalog of things that they've already designed and, and kind of tell them what you want? So as far as I know, they don't, I don't think they have a catalog, but they have... Missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> They have different people who are specialists in, in certain aspects, and they have people who have designed previous missions so they like also can do an overview of the whole thing. And mostly they, um, it's sort of an iterative process. So I'll, I, when I first approached them, I was like, I want, I kind of thought that maybe they would have a catalog or like a brochure that's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. here's our standard spacecraft buses. Like, do you need five arc second pointing? Like, go with this one. Do you need like this battery capacity? <laughs> but instead, it's actually a much more, um, it's a lot more customized, really. Hmm. So they'll say, you know, what pointing do you think you need? And then when I tell them, then they poke at it and they're like, okay, but why hmm. do you need that? What, like, what if we did it this way? Do you have to, um, are you scanning across fields or are you, you staring at a field and then moving to a new field and then staring again? And so they ask these very operational questions. Um, and then they try and figure out what the best solution is based on what they have. And it's sort of also a balance, not just of capability, but of cost. So if I need really, really good pointing, you know, you need to add more gyroscopes or more star trackers and that costs money. But then maybe there's other aspects of the spacecraft that there's not a, a strong constraint on. Like, I don't care as much how long it takes to go from one field to the next field. There's no like, like something like a, a spacecraft that's looking for planetary transits, for example, your timing is really important. You need to get to the star when the transit is happening whereas for us we're looking at molecular clouds the time scales that things change is like a million mm -hmm. years so <laughs> <laughs> so we're okay with like we don't need a super fast slew and settle time and actually just learning there's all these different you know requirements that end up being placed on the spacecraft and a lot of what i think of as the instrument requirements are really um like i care about okay what signal to noise do i want to achieve and they take that number and they translate into a, okay, what's the largest, the longest exposure time that you need? What's the shortest exposure time? Like they, they sort of translate it into these operational characteristics. And hmm. then they decide based on their own knowledge of what they can do. And in a lot of these cases, like for this mission, the cost is not really sufficient to develop any new technology. So they're, they're always looking for 
stuff that they've already flown that they know works. Have you already settled on a bus? Like, was that is that something that you get a lot of choice on, or is it kind of like, well, our instrument's going to be this big, we have to go with this bus? It's kind of it's closer to the second thing where the instrument is a certain size, and it, it's actually more based on the the cost cap that NASA places on this type of mission because that really actually sets the size of the telescope. The telescope size. Um, is a very good predictor of the overall cost of the mission. And so these this type of proposal, the small explorer, the PI managed cost is $145 million, which seems like a lot of money. And it is definitely a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, you're putting something in space. You have to have almost 30% contingency just off the top, just in case, because things go long or they cost more than you think. So really that buys you reasonably a, a 40 centimeter telescope. And then everything else, like the, the, the bus size that you're using, and a lot of the other um, scales kind of get set by that. The other thing that actually sets it is what is the fairing, like the size of the rocket that you need to fit into. Yeah. And so they specify a Pegasus rocket. Oh, you're flying on Pegasus. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is That's cool. That's interesting. That is, yeah. Um, we all love Pegasus. <laughs> <laughs> Although they leave open the opportunity, like they, the option that it, it has to fit within a Pegasus, but maybe by the time it happens, it won't be a Pegasus. Um, but that's just kind of like the, the size requirement. Do, do you know if there's any chance you might do a rideshare? I don't know. It depends kind of on, on how things end up. Like with this proposal, this will be the first time that I put it in. And typically you go through a couple of rounds before they actually select you. Sure. So by the time it gets selected, it, there may be that capability. It's it's large enough that I think right now it wouldn't it wouldn't work out that way. But one thing that's very interesting is the, the sort of increased number of like small sats and using like an Ursa ring. I think that is something that I'm definitely interested in exploring more in the future because if you can if you're not paying for the whole rocket like the the cost of the rocket isn't even included in that 145 million that's an mm -hmm. additional 50 million that NASA uh, sets aside for the launch and if you can bring that number down like that's fantastic and then you can use that money for other telescopes so what exactly is the weight restriction because like we have a size restriction but I imagine that a Pegasus can't put too much into orbit um, well, the weight also just depends on what orbit you're trying to get up to. So for a sun sink orbit, I think you're, I'm trying to remember now, I, they, like Ball has given me numbers, but it's mostly in terms of what the, just the instrument part would be. Um, because the spacecraft itself ends up being all like contributing a significant fraction of the mass. So I don't remember exactly the, the Pegasus. To get to low Earth orbit, it can basically take a thousand pounds. So we're talking about like a pretty small satellite, like all things considered. Yes. Oh, yeah. So so Ball is, you said, is is actually building the telescope itself? So Ball is, is going to build the spacecraft. And then we'll, right now our plan is to have them put everything together, do the integration. So the University of Arizona is like super famous for its optical capabilities. We mm -hmm. have the mirror lab where they make the giant like LSST and GMT mirrors. And then, but they also have a huge optics shop. So they can basically make any optic, any size to any precision. So I think our baseline <laughs> plan is to have Arizona do actually the op optical fabrication for the telescope and the spectrograph, but then have them have it put together at ball. Okay. It's so cool you know, to potentially have the opportunity to go look at, you know, your spacecraft while it's being built in the nursery. Oh, yeah. So have you decided what um, what pointing technologies you're going to use? Are you going to just use a couple of gyros? I mean, like that's kind of the, the default for, for telescopes. Yeah. So that's actually been an interesting process to learn about because I because there's there's like several different levels of pointing. There's precision and like accuracy of pointing, but then there's also knowledge of pointing. So like you can you could point the spacecraft at the same place every single time, but if you're one degree off from where you're actually trying to get, like if you don't know mm -hmm. where it's pointing within 
a certain amount, then your your very good accuracy is sort of useless. So you have to have a combination of gyroscopes and then also star trackers. And the star trackers basically give you the knowledge of where you are. And then the gyroscopes can turn that into a, an orientation so that you can get back there. So I think for us, we need at least, generally you need at least two, because that gives you better understanding of where you are. And then it's also a, sort of a failsafe. Two star trackers and then a couple of gyroscopes. But that's been interesting because our pointing requirements are for this, basically the bigger the spacecraft, the easier it is to have very good pointing. And the mm. Hubble Space Telescope, for example, has great pointing. We need um, a couple of arc seconds pointing stability and knowledge. And the smaller you get, like a CubeSat usually has a couple of arc minute pointing stability. Mm-hmm. And we need, we're, we're bigger than a CubeSat, but we're not so big that it's necessarily super easy to get that. So that's been something that we have to talk about with Ball, just about how much is it going to cost to add those extra star trackers to get better pointing? That's an interesting problem. I've never considered that, that, you know, a smaller satellite has a problem. I guess just because there's not as much mass and you have a much, like, shorter moment arm. Is that kind of like what it is? Is it just just kind of, like, very unstable because it's so small? And typically there isn't really enough um, space inside the spacecraft to actually fit all of those uh. things that you would want like some of the some of the astrophysics cubesats there's not that many of them to be honest but the they have to use their focal plane sort of as a tracker or they have to be okay with having reasonably bad pointing um, but for their for your science case if that's okay then it's fine there was this one cubesat called asteria that was designed specifically to get very good pointing out of a CubeSat. But basically they had a, t- a teeny tiny um, telescope and almost the entire volume of the CubeSat was just full of pointing stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now was your pointing uh, relaxed a little bit because you're not doing imaging and I guess molecular clouds, they're going to be fairly extended. Was that kind of the idea? Um, yeah, although what, what I'm trying to do is to, um, it's, a, it's a long slit spectrograph. So the pointing is basically set by the width of the slit. The molecular clouds are probably not changing over scale of like a couple arc seconds, which is the slit width right now. But we do want to just make sure that we can get back to the same place if we need to do multiple exposures, um, that you're not wandering across. Like there's not a lot of drift. That's one of the other kind of pointing requirements is the amount of drift in a certain time frame. So since it's spectroscopy, you're, you you do have slightly stricter pointing requirements. So this satellite has like gyroscopes, of course, but what does it have in terms of like thruster maneuvering? Uh, is that something that it has to have in order to maintain the orbit? Uh, no, actually, it has no thrusters. So one of the issues is if you if you need to do maneuvering, you need propellant. And that is what NASA calls a consumable. So that like will actually limit your mission lifetime if in order to point, you need to use a thruster. So all of the pointing is just um, using the gyroscopes and like inertial. And then in order to maintain the orbit, that's actually something that I just learned about last week that it depends on both. Like ideally, you, you use the rocket, send it up in the orbit, and you have to have an orbit that's stable over your initial mission lifetime, which is two years. But then it also has to degrade within 25 years. So there's actually like a range of altitudes that fit that um, limit because I guess they don't want, unless you're way above low Earth orbit, they don't want things that will just be in space forever, um, which is a whole other thing of like space junk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But we were looking at different launch windows. And if you launch in like 2023, for example, that's when there's a solar maximum and that puffs up the atmosphere. And so there's 
more drag on satellites in low Earth orbit. And so if we are low enough, then the mission lifetime would be less than two years because the atmosphere would drag on the spacecraft so much so that actually is also a thing to worry about is like what is the sun doing yeah pretty much this is something that you're just gonna send up there and just like let it go and then you have as long as you have before it deorbits and yes basically or until something else breaks on it basically (laughs) i mean typically with these it seems like the limiting factor is the gyroscopes actually like that's what happened with kepler like the focal plane was fine and it was the gyroscopes that were failing. And even HST, I mean, it's all of right. its instrument systems are good, and it's the gyroscopes. Well, we had we had that one instrument issue, but after that, it was yes. fine. <laughs> That's right. There was that one big one, yeah. So do you do you have to carry propellant to desaturate your gyros? Uh, no, there's no propellant at all. Although I don't actually know what desaturate the gyros means. Oh, okay. So when you're using gyros, basically you'll end up spinning them faster and faster and faster as they accumulate angular momentum from oh. your spacecraft. Okay. Um, and it gets to the point where you simply can't drive them any faster, both because your your motors end up having an upper speed limit, but also because it takes more energy to get the same angular momentum out of them. Um, and so long-term spacecraft will um, fire their thrusters and then push against the thruster with their gyro to de-spin them. Okay. But I, I'm assuming if, if you're working with you know, a relatively short mission, you can get away with not worrying about it. I don't know. Yeah. If, if Ball hasn't told you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like if you slew in one direction and then you go back, wouldn't that absorb most of the problem? Yeah, I think these are external sources of angular momentum. Yeah, and that would be the main concern. But for a couple of years, how much could that be? I mean, it might be a lot. I actually don't know. Like, if you have to worry about tidal problems with the Earth, maybe, but it's... Mm-hmm. No, definitely tidal problems. But with such a small satellite, I don't know. Is it still that big of a deal? Well, that's what I, I would guess is that because JWST, for example, has to worry about this because it's gigantic. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so for a two-year lifetime and not a yeah. terribly large spacecraft, I yeah. think. Like you said, if Ball hasn't told you (laughs) (laughs) to worry. Or they might have their own way of dealing with it and they'll never tell me about it. (laughs) I'll be interested in reading the the documentation for your spacecraft when it (laughs) pops up online at some point. Does it have a name? It does have a name. Um, I'm calling it Hyperion. It's not an acronym. It's just mm-hmm. a name. Not yet. <laughs> Hell yeah. We need more of that in astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really do. Uh, but I picked it because Hyperion is the father of the sun and the moon in Greek mythology. The sun, the moon, and the dawn. And since I want to know how you make a star, I felt like I wanted like the name to be like the parent of a star. So Hyperion. And I really that like is, the name too. That is great. I managed to go 40 minutes without asking what the, <laughs> what the name of it was. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what about communications? Have you have you started working on downlink capability, and do you have any restrictions there? Yeah, so we were looking at that. Um, our data rate is not uh, super crazy because a lot of what we're looking at, we're going to do long exposures, and it's a CCD, so we're reading out like frames of images. And so we had originally looked. There's three different bands that you can do. There's an X band, K band, and S band. And depending on which one you choose, they have different downlink rates. But they're you also pay every time you do a downlink for certain ones. And so that ends up going into your mission cost. Um, and if you need like an, an antenna that has to be pointed, then either you need to turn your spacecraft and stop science operations while you point the antenna at the mm-hmm. station, or you have to have an articulated antenna that can point while you're still doing other things. And then that also cost you money so either you pay in time or you pay in money but actually x-band which is the lowest data rate um, you can do what's called an omnidirectional antenna and then it just is downlinking 
all the time and you don't have to point anywhere because it's just kind of sending out the signal. Hmm. But that really only works, I think, in low Earth orbit because you're close enough that you don't need like a super high gain antenna. Does the University of Arizona have any downlink capability? For In my head, for some reason, you guys have some sort of, of dish there, right? Um, there are some things there, but really you, you're using what's called the near Earth network, okay. um, which is the analog to the deep space network. I didn't actually know that the near earth network existed until about two months ago, because I guess the deep space network has much better branding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I found out 10 seconds ago that it exists. So, so that's what, that's what everything in low earth orbit, I think uses, unless they're, it's like a, I assume this is, this is actually just for like government non-commercial entities um, and some commercial entities, but I assume certain other things, they have their own networks and they're not using this, but this basically Hmm. the near earth network is what we would buy time for the downlink. And then they send the data to um, like a missions operations center, which for our mission would be at Ames. And then that's where the data is collected. And then we'd send it to the science operations center. And Arizona could have the science operations center because it's basically just a room with a bunch of computers. Um, But you could do that almost anywhere. And they do do the operations for um, OSIRIS-REx since that was built by Lunar and Planetary Labs at Arizona. And that is the satellite um, or spacecraft that went to an asteroid and is collecting a sample. Did, did you hear the Pop Rocks theory? No. I'm trying to spread this. Um, somebody's um, somebody's kid is very, very interested in Bennu. But basically, they got a text from their partner saying, hey, you need to pick up more Pop Rocks on the way home uh, because this child has been throwing Pop Rocks across the living room trying to figure out how, how Bennu is sending these rocks off into space. And and this, <laughs> this child's theory is that it's um, uh, that there are compressed CO2 pockets inside the surface of Bennu. And as it warms up, uh, some water melts and releases those pockets of CO2. And now I actually have a favorite theory about why this is happening. Otherwise, I'm just like, what? what's going on? What's the truth? And now it's like, no, I want it to be the Pop Rocks theory. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's possible. Um, so are, are you leaning towards uh, X-Band then? Uh, yeah, because it's simpler. And it's a, it's definitely a slower downlink. It's like 20 megabytes per second versus, or megabits per second versus like 400 and something for the other bands. But then it just requires much less, um, it's simpler overall and it, the operations are simpler. So the general rule I feel like that one should follow when designing a spacecraft is to do the easiest thing possible that will still get the job done. Right. And an omnidirectional antenna that we don't need to move anything for and you still get all the data downlinked. That's, perfect um so what about software i'm assuming that you know ball is is providing a lot of software you you said you don't necessarily want to do any image processing on the vehicle but um are are you guys writing anything or just buying it all so we will need a a ccd controller so there's going to be some software required for just doing like grabbing the images and doing automated calibrations and stuff so that we can tell the spacecraft like take darks now and it'll close a shutter and then take some images or do calibrations on we're planning on using um, there's this collection of white dwarfs that have been observed by hubble as standard uv calibrators so that's what we want to look at those so we do need to just control the detector but then the rest of the software is is just the spacecraft controlling its various parts and so that will be mostly like stuff that ball already uses and it's um you know it's star trackers or whatever so because we don't really have, we just need to read out the CCD, you know, do like general housekeeping, like what's the temperature of the CCD, what's the temperature of other things. We need to keep the telescope at a relatively stable temperature. The software requirements on board are very limited and it's pretty easy. 
Whereas doing the actual analysis of the data is definitely going to be more complicated. But we want to just be able to do that on the ground where we have access to the full frame. The week before last, we spoke to someone about how you can use artificial intelligence on board satellites in order to do some of that work. But uh, that's definitely for, I think, like missions which are further away and on larger spacecraft. So I can see how that yeah. would not work here. Yeah, like it, like if you can only downlink a set amount of data and you're taking like 10 times as much as that, then you, you need to make decisions on board about what you're going to keep. And to a certain extent, like, it's actually good to do that because it forces you to really decide what's valuable. Whereas doing the full frames down, like, you can be lazier because you're getting everything. So you can worry about, um, you know, you don't have to, like, worry about that level of efficiency early on. And realistically, I feel like doing the data calibration reduction is kind of just you banging your head against the computer for the first couple of weeks because nothing works mm. like it's supposed to. <laughs> At least every pipeline I've ever done with never works on the first try. <laughs> and then Yes. Yeah. But then we'll have a pipeline and then, you know, you just run everything through it and it should be pretty straightforward. But I think the other thing is like when you do make a decision ahead of time about what to send down, you're necessarily limiting the possibilities of discovery because you're making a choice without really knowing how, how the information is going to look. And every space mission that we've ever sent up has had things that have been surprising. It's hard. It's a balance. Like you always have to make trade-offs. That's like really the lesson of this experience has been like, there's always a trade-off that you have to agonize over. And if you're limiting the data that you get sent down, you're basically trading off the possibility of a serendipitous discovery in those pixels that you're not mm -hmm. sending down. So uh, I looked up this, um, the UV standard star paper. It's listed on, the abstract is on ResearchGate, so I requested the uh, the full text, but it was published during my birth month, so this could be pretty cool. That's really your birth sign is UV standard stars. So yeah, I guess you can't calibrate your spectrometer using like a lamp with gas in it. I, or can some you can. space telescopes do that? Yeah, so we're talking about one of the issues is how you calibrate things. Like on the ground, you do a really careful, um, intense calibration using lamps of known photometric properties, known intensities. So you can say like, this telescope end to end gets like 20% throughput. This detector mm. gets 60% efficiency. Like each of these components has this efficiency and here's the wavelength solution on the detector and everything. So you can do that on the ground to a really high precision. And then the issue is what happens once you're in space and things degrade over time. Um, the UV is a tough wavelength because things absorb easily. So like over time, your mirror might lose efficiency a couple percent. And so having standards that you can go to in space give you that like overall throughput efficiency, but then you need to have like a flat field and a, a lamp that has line emission so you can figure out which wavelength is what on your detector. And so we're talking mm -hmm. about having a little calibration system that can do that internally to the spacecraft. So it'd be a light that turns on potentially like a fold mirror that comes in, although having moving parts is always bad. So one nice thing about being at Arizona is that um, there are people who have built parts of HST like upstairs from me. Mm -hmm. um, so Roger Thompson <laughs> was the PI. He was the PI of Nick Moss. Um, one of the very first instruments on HST. And so he was telling me about how they did their calibration by having one of their mirrors was not completely reflective. So they had a lamp that that would turn on behind the mirror and then like, you know, a few percent of that lamp brightness would pass through the mirror into the optical path. And then they could do calibrations that way. And you don't have to move anything. You just turn a lamp on and off inside of the instrument. <laughs> That's um, cool. Yeah. So one of the cool things about being in Arizona is that there are like, these incredible people who like George Riki and Marshall Riki are two professors there and they've built 
significant components of JWST. And so they know a lot about building telescopes in space. And it's been really great to be able to just like stop in their office and ask them a question. So, uh, so speaking of resources, the reason we reached out to you is because you talked about maybe writing a paper about how to build a space telescope. How, how's that coming? Yeah. So the paper is coming. I like work on it when I, I'm tired of doing other things. And I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to write all of the things that have been frustrating me. <laughs> And I'm not sure if I'm going to have it in time. I think it would make a good white paper for the decadal survey, which is happening now in astronomy every 10 years. There's like a, a status of the field survey, both like scientifically and from a um, hardware like infrastructure standpoint. And then this year they're adding in a state of the profession category. And one thing that I've realized, so I'm trying to do this, and I'm really young in the age range of people who try and build space telescopes. I'm one of the younger people, and this is the first time I'm doing it, and so I'm learning all this stuff. And there's a lot of information that is just not out there, and people aren't being malicious. They're not trying to, like, hide it. It's just that if you don't do it, you have no idea. And so I was thinking maybe I can try and get this paper together in time to submit it to the decadal that's like, here's how to build a space telescope. But I actually have been talking to a few people at foundations and at NASA about making it into a workshop and maybe like a recurring workshop and not just in astrophysics, but across all of NASA science, like heliophysics, planetary, to just be like a almost like a PI incubator, like come with a science question and then we'll tell you all the steps that you have to take. Like, who do you talk to at a NASA center? Who do you talk to at an aerospace company? And just the process, because there's a lot of politicking also mm-hmm. in bringing people on board. How do you build a science team? And and even then, like the types of questions. So you have the science question that you want to ask. And then what does that mean in terms of like, what what's the instrument best suited to answer that question? What's the, the CONOPS, which is the term for like the day-to-day operation of this telescope? Like what, how do you set requirements? And then how do those flow from your science question to the actual mission design? Mm. Um, so the whole process is, it's a good process because it works, but it's very opaque if you haven't been through it. Like you build this, this Excel spreadsheet that's called a science traceability matrix and STM. And I've sent my STM out to people who have been working in astrophysics for like 20 years. And they're like, what is this? Because if you're just a scientist, you never see anything like that. You don't think about, well, why does HST have the certain dynamic range that it has? And you just use the thing as it exists today. Hmm. But that process, it's a it's a different way of thinking to go from like, what do I want to try and do? And then where does that limit me? And where does that open me up to other possibilities? So hmm. yeah, doing like some kind of workshop, like the NASA people I, I've spoken with want to make it like a recurring thing, but they, they really want to increase the number of people who come up with new missions. And I personally, I feel like the process is hard, but everything in astronomy is hard. Like science is hard. <laughs> so that's not a reason for other people who maybe have an interesting science idea, but they don't view themselves as a hardware person or they don't view themselves as someone who could be a PI. Like they could be a PI. All that it takes is a good idea and the ability to see it through. And so I kind of want to like bust the doors open of who thinks that they can do that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's like a really good idea just to like to have some kind of an organization in place that can actually address these issues, you know, like... um yeah. Sort of like a reference because there isn't one out there. I mean, you've kind of just had to go it alone in, or not completely, but you know, you have to find out what you need to know from various people. But if there was like a central group or I don't know, like an yeah. online wiki or something. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. If you like call this person at NASA or call this person at, at um, JPL and certain NASA centers do have kind of a development process, but it's also if you don't, if you're at a university that where you don't know anybody that has worked with JPL or with Goddard, you don't even know who to ask. And it's mm-hmm. hard to find the information because there's not that many people that really do it. So I just think that one of the issues is like asymmetry of information. The people who have already done it already know. 
and the people who haven't have no idea. And But yeah. that's something that you can fix really easily in the age of the internet. And I was going to think that there's probably so many scientists out there that have never even considered that that's a possibility, that they could be somebody to PI spacecraft. That's why I think what you do is so cool, because you're, you're, <laughs> you're talking to all these different groups, right? You've got the scientists, you've got the optics and detector people, and you've got the actual aerospace people and they're yeah. just very different cultures and fields and just the main thing is like to that you're organized and that you i mean i think it's really important because all these people are giving me their time and i feel like their time is like literally the most valuable thing that they have and so for me it's really important that i use that time well and that they know that i value their time that i'm not asking them to do something and then i just ignore it like one of the other things about just writing this little paper and doing a workshop potentially is that i would have the ability to like set the tone for a lot of potential future PIs. And there's this, there's an old style of being a PI, which is like, I'm the boss, everyone works for me. And, and there's been a lot more tolerance for jerks in just the world in general, but that you could be a PI and be like kind of a jerk. Um, mm -hmm. And I just don't think that that's necessary. I think people will work really well for someone who cares about them. And so I'm kind of interested in also trying to like, just set the tone of being a little more like, you know, you as a PI might have a PhD in some science field, but that doesn't mean that you know any more than the engineer who's trying to design your thermal system. Like that engineer is also really valuable. And in the past, that connection has not necessarily been true. Like the science people are like, oh, well, all these engineers are working for me. I'm paying their salary, so they should do whatever I want. But that actually they have really valuable insights and to take, you know, every person that's working on it to take them seriously. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was such a, a fun conversation to have. Um, we have two final questions. Uh, the penultimate question is where would you like to be found on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Erica Hamden, E-R-I-K-A. H-A-M-D-E-N. And then I'm also on Instagram. My handle is the same, Erica Hamden. And you can also go to my website, which has my CV and almost no information about my <laughs> telescopes. <laughs> Ehamden.org. Uh, and our final, our ultimate question is, uh, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? Okay, so this might not count as an object, but I before I was a, a grad student, I went to cooking school and I worked as a chef for, for a while. Uh -huh. And I used to make wedding cakes and stuff for my friends when I was in grad school, just as like my present to them. And so one of my friends used to joke that the perfect combination of my skills would be to open up a bakery in space. Yes. Yes. And so whenever, <laughs> whenever I accomplish anything, he like will email me and say one step closer mm -hmm. to the space bakery. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I feel like I need so to bring wonderful. like an easy bake oven or something. <laughs> yeah. You need to develop a zero G oven is what you need to do. <laughs> yes. All cakes in space are spherical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lot easier to do a spherical cake in space. That's not a bad idea actually like because yeah. you could do that just in space i mean a truly spherical cake like you could oh you got me thinking about that yeah that's <laughs> that's like a cool business proposition once transportation to space is a little bit cheaper well or maybe heck, a, yeah. a lot cheaper. like we're always looking for things that can only be manufactured in space and i'm sure that there's like an angel food cake that mm -hmm. has so much air in it that can yes. only be made in lower zero g all right great thank you so much uh for taking the time to talk to us yeah thank you for having me all 
All right, time for some upcoming spaceflight events. Just a couple of launches and a spacewalk. So first up is a Long March, which is lifting off on March 30th. And that is a Long March 3B slash E. And that's launching Tianlian 2-01. Tianlian is a Chinese data tracking and relay communications satellite series. And so I guess this is the maybe the second satellite that they're putting up. I'm not quite sure. See, that's lifting off on March 30th at 1630 UTC. And it has a window of 1630 through 1730 UTC. So one and a half hours. And that's launching from Launch Complex 2 from the Xichang Satellite Launch Center. Keep an eye out for it, but you can't really. So just know that it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a PSLV QL uh, launching. Uh, this will be the first time that the QL variant uh, will fly. It has four strap-on boosters is its difference. And it will be taking uh, the Emisat satellite along with 28 others on a uh, rideshare. The fourth stage of the rocket will actually is actually equipped with solar panels and will serve as an experimental platform for in-orbit experiments. And so this launch will take place on April 1st at 0400 UTC with a launch window going from 0330 to 0730, uh, flying out of the Sadish Dawan Space Center second launch pad. And then we're going to step back in time just a little bit to March 29th when the uh, the next spacewalk is going to be happening. So this is going to be uh, McLean and Cook, like we said before. The coverage is going to be airing on NASA TV. Um, so uh, the coverage will begin at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and the spacewalk will begin at 8.20 a.m. Eastern Time, and it's expected to last for seven hours. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. That means it's time to deal with the show, and so we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sunday Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.